Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Peter, How Does the Government Work? I'm Peter Tong, and I'm here with my friends Carrie Mackay and Dia Suwa Singh. Today, we're going to talk about oral questions. Now, oral questions, as they're formerly known, we know better as question period. So, as a basis, when the House is sitting every day at 2.15, there is what's called question period, where the opposition is allowed to ask questions of the government. And it's interesting because anyone that's ever watched a question period sitting goes, well, how does the person who's answering all those questions know all that stuff? Well, that's thanks to staffers, because although it all looks very spontaneous and that sort of thing, there's an agreement between the leaders of the House where they know generally, if not very specifically, they know generally what the questions are going to be. So staff prepare briefing books for who's ever going to answer the questions. So they know the questions that are coming. It's decided typically, the, well, always the leader of the opposition asks the first question. If the prime minister is in the house, he will answer that question. And then they may be spread around to various ministers, to the prime minister, to the deputy prime minister, depending on, you know, the cynical person in me says, depending on how much focus they want to put on the question. If it's an issue that they're trying to, to sort of fluff off, the question is not going to be answered by the prime minister or the deputy prime minister. The question is going to be answered by the departmental minister or even a departmental deputy minister and so on and so on to say, we don't really care what you think about this. Now, that, that may... That may not be the government's official position, but that's, from from my sort of cynical, sarcastic side, that's kind of how it works. Depending on who answers your question, it's how much attention are we paying to this. Interesting. Now, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that I was looking earlier at sort of the procedural rules for questions, and the first rule is, it can't be a statement, it has to be a question. And I know we've all watched question period, and we all know that they get around that by making some big long statement and then ending it with something like, so Mr. Prime Minister, won't you resign? After they spend five minutes telling him what a horrible job he's doing and you know that the, his family is awful and the government does nothing, and, and then they add a question. And that's how they, that's how they get into question period. It's it's funny. I was reading this morning, and I wasn't fully prepared for today. But I was reading the um, book on the House by Rob Walsh, who I think was like a parliamentary lawyer or something for a period of time. And in this book, he writes, "Wednesday's question period is usually the most interesting, as members have met in caucus in the morning and are full of brackets partisan close bracket beans, as it were, or or, or some of the." rest of us might call it piss and vinegar after they get themselves all riled up. Right, exactly. <laughs> and and so I, I would be really interested to, you know, kind of see the difference between, you know, maybe a, uh, a groggy Tuesday start of the week versus Wednesday when they've all, you know, been enjoying time with their uh, party colleagues and yeah. preparing themselves. I guess the other thing I should 
mention is is question period on Fridays is actually at eleven fifteen in the morning on the theory that the MPs are going to be using Friday afternoon to travel back to their constituencies. So, and I know I just said Tuesday is the start of the week. Do they have question period on Monday? I know they start later, so they have time to get back to Ottawa, but is there actually a question period on Monday or no? I'm not sure. It just says whatever days the House is sitting. Do you think there's a review of the, uh, it must be a question, not a statement? Do they, to me, make that disclaimer at every question period, do we think? Just as a refresher for people? Oh, no, absolutely not. In fact, clear, clearly they don't enforce that in the least. As long as there's some sort of question hanging off the end of my rather angry statement that I made to the government. So more a suggestion than a hard and fast. Uh, well, it's, it's supposedly a hard and fast rule, but it's clearly one that's not enforced. Uh, enforce, right. that's it. There, there's a big difference between having a rule and enforcing a rule, right? True, true, true. So how do they determine who gets to ask a question? Is there like a box? Is there random draw? Do they have to sign up? Like, how does the speaker kind of know who's to call on or who's going to speak next? Well, again, this is all provided to him by the leaders of the party, the, the house leaders of the parties. They've, submit, they've submitted... Well, there's two processes. The, the the house leaders of each of the parties submits the questions so the speaker will have them and know who's asking and who's answering and whatever. There also is a formal process where you can put a written question on the order paper. Now, that's typically done when somebody from the opposition is going to ask, stand up and ask the government for very specific facts and figures and all that sort of stuff. So they're letting them know, I'm going to specifically want to know how much money was spent on this and that or whatever to give the opportunity for when the when the briefing book is being prepared. So those things are there. I mean, the Prime Minister clearly doesn't know exactly how much money the Department of Defense has spent on buying helicopters off the top of his head. It has, right. to, be, it has to be in the briefing book, right? Got it. And there have been mistakes, not so much at the federal level, but I know there have been times in the Ontario provincial legislature where people have gotten themselves into trouble because ministers have mentioned like constituents' names and things that they're not supposed to do. And that's sort of the fault of the person answering the question, but it's also the fault of the person preparing the briefing book because the name should have never appeared in the briefing book because then the minister wouldn't have known who it was. <laughs> so it's sort of a dub double failure. They relied too much on the briefing book and the briefing book had things in there that, you know, shouldn't have been because if you, if you don't, if you don't want your member to have that information to give out to everybody else, don't provide it to them. Right. Right, and there was actually a case during during the NDP government in Ontario, you know, probably twenty or thirty years ago, whenever it was, where the minister had to resign because number somebody's name was revealed in the house and it came out of the briefing book. Right, so that's why you have good staffers that give you the right stuff. But all the people, all the people behind the scenes that are keeping things running in some sort of sanity. <laughs> Well, that's, that's just it. The, the, the MPs are kind of the front people or the actors, right? They have a whole team around them who are providing them with information and research and, and all that sort of, sort of stuff. It was very interesting in, 
in the podcast that we put out about the how is PharmaCare going to roll out? And, and our guest made the point of the Liberals are going to be pulling the heck out of this to find out how it's going to roll out. They haven't probably haven't decided yet, but they're going to see what's going to be the most palatable to the electorate. Right. right. That would be our interview with John Delacourt. And you can find that in your feed. And it's definitely worth a listen to hear what his thoughts were on on that stuff. And that's a good example. There'll be a whole team of pollsters and researchers and whatever advising the government in the background about sort of where they should fall on the on the pharmacare. And as always, they may or may not follow the advice for political expediency, but they it's, I think it's important for listeners to understand that they at least start with with sort of a, a base of some information. They're probably not pulling their decision out of the air. Right. But it's it's one of the reasons why, you know, question period looks, despite the yelling and the name calling and all that, which I'll talk about in a minute, that's Good. why that that that's why it looks like everybody's really well prepared and because because they they know what the questions are going to be and they have they have a briefing book that, that helps them with the answers so they're not standing up on their feet and and sort of creating a, a an answer for nothing that's usually when people get themselves into trouble when they start straying away from the prepared material well and it's interesting too because i didn't really thought about this but I can't remember exactly what year it was, but I feel like it was sometime in the 1940s or something. Prior to that, they they weren't allowed to use prepared notes in the house. I mean, personally, I'm sure it just makes it flow a lot better if they're allowed to have notes. Otherwise, they might just be, you know, rambling on more than more than they normally do. Well, clearly the practice has changed, and I presume the practice has changed because people making stuff up on the fly as they were standing in the House of Commons was probably not all that useful. Well, exactly. And, and especially today when we're so much more media savvy and everybody's plugged in and whatever, whatever, if somebody makes a mistake in the house, it's all over social media in the following 15 minutes, right? right. So they're really, really trying to to avoid that. I, I think to properly talk about question period, we also need to talk about parliamentary privilege and non-parliamentary language. <gasps> My favorite. <laughs> so par- parliamentary privilege in brief is this, is the, the House of Commons rules that say within the workings of the Commons business, MPs need to be allowed to speak freely. So their speech within that business is protected. Okay. So you might say something within the parliamentary business that, you know, in normally everyday life would be considered libelous or something like that, like making accusations about the character of your colleague across the aisle. If it's done within the context of parliamentary business, that's protected and that's okay. Well, I don't know if it's okay, but it's protected, right? So. That's why some of these exchanges get really heated and name calling happens and all kinds of stuff because you're giving the freedom to do that. And the idea of that was they wanted to give MPs the freedom to speak in their mind and not be worried about somehow being censured for that. It's interesting because the way the law has evolved in Canada and in Britain and in Australia is a bit different. 
on sort of what defines that parliamentary business. In Britain, the definition seems to be a bit broader. You probably have those protections outside of the house and in the commons complex, not just in the house. In Canada, by tradition, it's kind of evolved that you lose that privilege the minute you step outside the house. And there was a quite a famous incident in 2011 involving then MP Justin Trudeau, and there was a there was a big debate going on over the Kyoto Protocols, and Peter Kent, who was the Conservative Minister of the Environment, was beating up the Liberals because they hadn't gone to the Kyoto meetings and saying they should have been there. Well, they probably should have been there, but the, the government wouldn't give them the credentials to go. So the government was beating them up for not going, but wouldn't provide them with the credentials to go so uh, perfect yeah so uh, justin trudeau lost his temper and on the record in question period called the minister of environment a piece of shit and and this blew up and of course the the first thing the first thing the minister of the environment did after reporting it to his favorite conservative newspaper went outside the house and challenged Member Trudeau to come outside the house and repeat his words, where the, where they weren't protected by by parliamentary privilege. Right. Well, quality behavior right here. Quality. Right. <laughs> um, which which Mr. Trudeau never did, but I couldn't remember at the time. But I went back and I did some looking, and it wasn't it wasn't that somebody got in trouble for saying something outside the house. They were challenged to re-say it outside the house where they were. It was kind of like come out into the schoolyard and say that again. Right. Well, the teacher's not watching. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. And that didn't happen. And, and of course, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, our current prime minister's father, was often famous for saying things during question period that were not parliamentary. He is famed to have said, and I, I don't remember the date, to, to have mouthed somebody F you across the floor of the house. And when challenged about this by the speaker, he said, no, no, you're mistaken. I said, fuddle duddle. <laughs> and so there was the whole fuddle duddle incident of him, you know, yelling at a, at a member across the aisle. And it's interesting because the, one of the reasons I bring that up is one of the things that the speaker can do in Canada is they can declare certain way, words or phrases as being non-parliamentary language, and you can't use them in the House. Is that like buzzword bingo? Is that what we have here? I, I know. I know there is a there is there is an official list of of things you're not allowed to say. And, and it is absolutely on Wikipedia. <laughs> of course it is, and I and I have it here in front of me. And one of the one of the things that the that that was done to sort of address the Fuddle Duddle incident, which was nineteen seventy one, is Fuddle Duddle was declared unparliamentary language. Oh goodness. There's there's a whole there's a whole list here of about thirty words. Um, in 2011, after the incident, we talked about piece of shit was designated as non-parliamentary language. 
a bag of wind was in uh, 1878 or something, which is hilarious. Yeah, I love that the first one was Parliament Repugilist in 1875, which seems relatively relatively tame today. Interestingly, racist is considered unparliamentary language, so if somebody is being racist, I don't know how you address them in the House. Well, and that was kind of my question is, you know, are the are these words strictly these words, or is it also, you know, like the synonyms for these words? Because you also cannot tell call somebody a liar in the house, which I think is hilarious because that's basically that, you know, they're yelling at each other half the time and basically probably implying that fairly frequently, but not allowed to say it. No, but the reason you're not allowed to say it is in 1959, it was declared one of the elements of non-parliamentary language. Right. I mean, so somebody made an application to the speaker of the time and said they shouldn't be allowed to call me a liar, and it was agreed, and it's on the list of... But can you get around that by saying, well, you're being untruthful, or you're untruthful? Like- oh, sure, you can, you can say, I don't, find, I don't find the member's comments truthful, something similar, you just can't directly call them a liar and you certainly couldn't couldn't call them a, a liar outside of, of the house right so do you members like try to creatively find their way around the words on this list oh I, i'm sure they do so yeah but actually thank thank you justin trudeau piece of shit was the last one in canada was officially declared <laughs> non-parliamentary, but it's interesting that we start with something relatively mild like bag of wind, and by the time we get to into the 21st century, we're into racist, scuzzball piece of shit. So it's, it's a very small indicator of how parliamentary decorum, if I can call it that, has, has sort of declined over the years. And anybody that watches has watched Question Period sees the the yelling and the barbs and the and the taunting and things that go back and forth. I I don't think it adds anything to the process, but that's kind of where we are right at the moment. I also just feel the need to mention the one added in 1917 was you can no longer call someone the political sewer pipe from Carleton County. I don't know if you can refer to them as the political sewer pipe from Another electoral district, though, that is that is not clear by this list. The other story, I'd, I'd heard this this other story for years. And it, the way that I heard the story was that it happened in the House of Commons. Now that I've done more research, it appears that it didn't happen actually within the House, but it happened on the campaign trail. And it goes back to our first prime minister, John A. McDonald, who was a drunk. Basically, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna soften it any more than that. He was a very, very heavy drinker. There's a great story of where on the campaign trail he'd had a, a great deal to drink, and he gets up to make a speech and vomits all over the stage, like not not a plate, little like really really Ill all over the stage. Why? And he said, then he continued on with his speech as only a politician would do. And he said, I'm not ill because I'm drunk. I'm ill because the loyal opposition makes me sick. (laughs) Wow. I'm uh, frankly a bit disappointed that that didn't actually happen in the house. I think it would have been brilliant. But the most, there's probably a dozen different versions of the story. But the one that appears most often is it happened on the campaign trail. Wow. 
I, I should just add to the list that is on Wikipedia is actually not just from the parliament. It is also including the Legislative Assembly of Alberta and the National Assembly of Quebec. I don't know why those two provinces are specifically also on this list, but I would be curious what other words or phrases have been added to this list by other provincial legislatures. Yeah, and, and of course, different countries also and different legislatures also have their 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 own list, right? Right. And I mean, the, the official House of Commons sort of material on this likes to sort of, sort of point out what a narrow, small privilege this is. But I don't think it's all that narrow, particularly today, given what people are getting getting away with. I mean, they 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 take the official position that it's a that it's a very narrow privilege. I'm not quite so sure that it's all that narrow. I think they get away with a lot. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, but like everything else we see in official documents, everything's restricted and narrow and carefully thought out, and right. you know. It's like senators are only selected because of, you know, they have their great intellect to provide the oversight of parliament, not because they're well connected and belong to a political party, right? Right. <laughs> I think that it's just a general procedure question is that just reining it all in, like, because it all seems to go sideways. And, like, is there actually a process for reining it back in? Or, like, it, you know, they don't get a maximum number of questions or anything like that, right? Well, they do because question period is only four. Because a lot of them are bags of wind, which is like restricted. <laughs> I know, but the one the one restriction is, and I think this is important because we all know that politicians like to talk. Question period is forty five minutes. Right? That's so, not a lot of time. <laughs> no, so that's why it's it's pretty well structured. And if you're if you're and I'll be on parliamentary peg of winding it too much, you're not going to get to ask all your questions because you're going to get cut off. Now, theoretically, they could go to the next day, but I get the impression that they almost do theme days. Like today in the House of Commons, we're going to talk about the environment and all the questions are going to be about the environment and for the environment minister and whatever. And tomorrow in question period, we're going to talk about pipelines. Right, because last night I watched the question period from April 1st, and that was focused around like two issues, one of the, which was the Official Languages Act. And yeah, there were like two topics covered in that whole question period. So that makes sense that it's like very thematically structured. And I, and I think that would be pretty typical, right? Because basically it's just everybody trying to get their position on the record. Now, I know, Carrie, you also had a question about why does everybody talk to the speaker? Because it's exactly that. It's because the member who's either asking the question or replying to the question is supposed to be addressing Parliament, not having an argument with the person. That, so they're officially addressing the speaker with their questions and with their answers. And yes, the speaker has his official speaker's chair and his speaker's robe to give him that authority to does that does that help? I mean, I'm sure it, it tamps down on some of the divisiveness, but it d does it truly help to cut that down, or do they just rag on each other through the speaker? Not, I mean, not that the speaker is repeating anything indirectly, so to speak. Again, I think it's the difference between the theoretical and the practical, right? Theoretically, this is all going through the speaker, and the speaker is being addressed. But I can guarantee you, if Justin Trudeau 
was calling Peter Kent a piece of shit. He wasn't staring at the House Speaker of the House of Commons as he was doing that. Precisely. He was yelling at the Minister of the Environment. Oh my god. I just said, we probably covered this already, but I was just thinking about kind of two things. One was the purpose and intent of question period, which seems to be more about, I guess, strategy position than actually asking a question in my eyes or in my framework right now. And the other one, which has totally now escaped my mind, was another question about a question. Hmm. I'll get back to you on that. Well, I think I can reinforce a little bit. I, 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 think, I think the intent of question period is to have a public forum that Canadians can watch where the opposition is trying to hold the government to account. Now, yes, it's also used for a whole lot of political positioning and all that kind of stuff, the lead-in statements to the questions, but ultimately the theory is the opposition publicly gets to hold the government to account by asking questions about their conduct and their programs and the way that they're implemented. I find it interesting as well that there are principles and guidelines for oral questions on the House of Commons website. What I find interesting is there are five bullet points under principles and guidelines for oral questions, but under restrictions on oral questions, there are 16 bullet points. So they really have to be told what not to do more than they're being told what to do. Again, the cynic in me says, well, that's kind of where we're at, right? It doesn't surprise me in the least. I just thought it was interesting. This is how it is framed to, uh, essentially to members, right? Yeah. And, and, and to, to follow up on one of your questions a little bit further, the Speaker of the House does have the authority to try to put a damper on some of the more silliness, but I mean, it, it, it's, at times it's almost broken down to the point of, you know, the Speaker saying the sort of the very parliamentary equivalent of you need to stop yelling at each other like this or I'm going to send you all to your rooms. <laughs> so is that when like a point of order would be called or a point of order is totally different than them being kind of um, rebuked by the speaker? No, a point of order is something complete, completely different. A point of order is something isn't being followed procedurally and we'll get a whole lot more into procedure. But for example, you would call a point of order if the leader of the opposition didn't ask the first question in question period because they're they're entitled to ask the first question, right? So if somebody else from another party got all excited and jumped up, somebody from the Green Party got all excited and jumped up because they had a question about the environment, the opposition would likely call a point of order so they would be allowed to ask the first question. But that's more of a procedural thing, not a behavioral thing. Right. So... I guess in that context, when they're asking questions in question period, and this is kind of procedural, is if the leader of the opposition gets the first question, is that just, you know, kind of automatically afforded to them? Or can, can other people, or, or for example, say after that, after the leader of the opposition asks the first question, do they just like kind of follow the prearranged plan for the day or do people kind of sometimes start interrupting and trying to get their question out even though it's not their turn? My understanding is they follow the prearranged agreement for the day. It's all provided to the speaker and to the house party leaders, not the party leaders, the questions that are going to be asked and who the responses are going to come from. Got it. Because yeah, yeah I, I always felt that it, 
appears when you watch question period it appears very organized other than the yelling and heckling but i just you know i didn't know how they actually determined that order so it's it's pre-done ahead of time and everything's sorted out and they adhere to it it's it's all organized in fact the the couple of times i've been to watch question period the political person that was with me said the questions for the government today are going to be this 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 and this they knew well ahead of time you know, the prime minister will answer the first question and the minister of the environment will answer the second question. There'll be a follow-up response from the prime minister, you know, blah, blah, blah. And is that released to media at a time? So they no. know if, oh, okay. They still sort of protect the vision of this is all sort of, you know, spontaneous parliament <laughs> in action. Got it. Like, uh, is this a reality show, spontaneous but scripted? Is this what I'm hearing? Well, it's a little... Uh, I, I'll, I'm going to use the survivor analogy where it's all like, oh, oh, here we are in the middle of wilderness and nothing, and we have no food and water. Uh, cut! Back to your trailers! <laughs> right, but we have a camera crew, and they obviously have provisions, right? Well, frankly, everybody has provisions, and it's a little bit like that, right? It's like, okay... Questions period is over and we go off and we do what we do. And if there's not going to be a vote today or you're not involved in in answering the questions today in question period, you may not even be there. And the House of Commons camera keeps a nice little cluster shot tight so it looks like everybody's there. Oh, so this is like almost like activities for the B team is what we're hearing. Like, No, not necessarily. Sometimes literally (laughs) there's going to be a whole series of questions back and forth between the leader of the opposition and the prime minister. But as I say, if it's an issue that you don't want your deputy prime minister or the prime minister to get nailed down on, the minister of whatever or a deputy minister of whatever is going to answer the question because they're the one officially on record because then the opposition parties can't say, well, the prime minister said in the House that, you know, we're not going to build any more pipelines. Don't don't set up a situation where those words might come out of the prime minister's mouth because then you have to live with it. Right. I guess that's where the heckling comes in. <laughs> yeah. So, and I, I'm just reading here too, it says the standing orders specify that each question should be addressed to a minister, the spokesperson of the Board of Internal Economy, or a committee chair if it is re- relevant to the relevant committee schedule and agenda. So that's who they can ask questions of. Yeah. Which would, of course, include the prime minister as a minister. But interestingly, very much, you don't see... You don't see like the president of the treasury board answering questions. Those usually go through the political frontline people. It sounds from that description like a question could be asked directly to the president of the treasury board, but I don't think I've ever seen the president of the treasury board stand up and answer a question in the house about, you know, the the ten dollars they're spending for, you know, coffee creamer or whatever. Right. <laughs> whatever the outside of the day is. So I guess there's like no suggestion box and question period, but like, hey, I'd like to know about that today. No, but I, I, again, I think it's all part of the negotiations in the background about what's going to be addressed today. And, and a lot of it's going to depend. I mean, if a committee report just got released on a particular topic, right? We talked in our early episodes about the whole research department that committees have and the power of committees. If a committee report came out 
on Friday, on the next day that there's question period in the House, there's likely to be questions of the results of that committee report, right? Definitely, yeah. Makes That's sense. Where it gets addressed. But it's all it's all rather I, I don't I don't mean to dismiss it because I think it's important. One of the things that I think the British do really well is there's a channel in Britain where today's question period runs around the clock. So wow. as, so as, as you can tune in at any time and watch question period from today, which I think is really that sounds hardcore and amazing. Well, I think it's really neat because people really can see what's going on in their house. And even if there's a news story that says, you know, there's a big kerfuffle in the house today, you can then go and, and watch what was recorded live of what actually happened. It really is democracy in action. I think that's a, that's a really cool thing, and I'd like to see us do more of that. I mean, I, I think C-SPAN, I don't know if they put all of the question periods up or some of them or part of them, or but, I mean, it would be nice to have access to be able to watch the I mean, God knows they put up enough committee hearings, which are like listening to paint dry. But I would just like to say that I was at a work retreat, and that was the channel I could get in the TV in my washroom, in my bathroom for my viewing and getting ready pleasure. I had feedback, I had Parview, I had them all. I'm just saying, like, there you go. they want their guests to be informed. You guess. know that if I were in your hotel, I would just have that TV constantly tuned on to Pearlview and just be listening in on what the heck was going on in the world, which I, I just think it was so funny when you informed us of that fact that that was one of the channels available on the bathroom TV. Also, just mind blown that there was a random bathroom TV, which also appeared to have inputs for some sort of um, auxiliary device. Yeah, I think it was maybe an old like uh, cable converter or something. Um, and also, this washroom still also had a telephone right beside the toilet. So, <laughs> I have know, seen those. Yeah, just bring bring back that that uh, luxury and convenience to its guests. So, I, so I take it that your conference was in Ottawa because that'd be the kind of place that had parliamentary TV available. Ironically, not. But when I, I think when I have, I used to go to Ottawa all the time for work, and I believe that was like the second channel. If you were changing the TV channels, yeah. no, my this one was not not a one because the odds of you, you know, someone being in Ottawa is probably pretty good. They're there on political business or exactly. political interest, so they're going to want to tune into all the goings on. So, but I that's that's one thing I like about. Britain is both on TV and on radio. You can tune into the the question period at, at any time and find out what what went on. I also like the fact that they don't have deaths to hide behind, so they can actually stand up and yell at somebody. Oh, very cool. Now, one, it's interesting that we talk about sort of the, the misbehavior in Parliament because one of Justin Trudeau's explanations for forming the coalition with the NDP was he hoped that that would mean there would be less rancor in the house? <laughs> I'm not sure that that particular goal. Is I don't know how that could going, ever be an objective, but okay, no. going going <laughs> to be going to be achieved. But it was one of the one of the stated objectives. I mean, I would certainly see how it might lead to more stability and perhaps slightly less total dysfunction. I don't know if it would lead to any less partisan bickering and antics in the house i 
frankly, I don't think anything in the current political climate is going to bring down the temperature on the bickering and the rancor because we've sort of <laughs> set ourselves up in North American style to be very confrontational. And, you know, it's interesting because I think lots of MPs from all sides of the House are probably quite friendly away from the house, but it appears that when it comes to the political world, it's, it's all bashing knuckles and bashing heads. Right. I mean, they are all attending the Speaker Scotch party together, so. I'm sure there are exceptions, but I think, I think there are more, more MPs that get along outside of the house and outside of the political rancor than there are, you know, like people that won't speak to each other and whatever. I'm sure there's some of both, but I would, I get the feeling that there's more more camaraderie than one might know from watching Question Period. And when you think about it, that's not such a huge surprise because they live in a pretty isolated environment. There's only that number of members of MPs that sort of live in that world. So you have to be able to function within that or you're going to be really, really isolated, right? So they're not just like giving each other the cold shoulder in the airport? I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure there are cases of that. It depends on personalities. Like when I was a criminal defense lawyer, I got along with, and and most crown attorneys got along with defense attorneys, but there was always that one personality that you show up in the morning to the trial and, you know, the crown attorney is so into his role, he won't say good morning to you because you're the opponent for that day. that's, That's rare. And there are defense attorneys that were the same way, but it was much more of a, hey, this is a, this is an interesting one. We're going to have a good day today. <laughs> you know, yeah. Not, I'm not going to speak to you because you're on the other side of the aisle. Right, which is, you know, probably the level of professionalism that it should be treated with, right? You know, and, and, and I, I think you have to have a certain level of that for those types of positions that are, that are kind of insular because the, Take it from my wife. Nobody wants to hear me talk about the law all day unless they're another lawyer. Um, so if you isolate yourself from all the other lawyers, you're probably going to burst because you've got nobody to talk to about this thing that takes up such a big part of your life. And it's got to be like that to be a parliamentarian. Right? right, for sure. Because the last thing that your family wants you to do is to come home for dinner and tell them about all the antics in parliament that day because they all heard it a thousand times. I was going to say, well, you know, there's one way to have dinner conversation right there. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, and I'm sure it's very interesting in the beginning, but I'm sure if you had to do it, do it every day and that wasn't the circle that you lived in other than it was your spouse or your whatever, it's probably okay. Well, I've, I've had enough of this for this year. <laughs> yeah, d- definitely can understand that feeling. Well, I know, because when I was a young lawyer, we would have a number of young lawyers here at the house and it would, the conversation would always turn to law while everybody else blazed over because it was such a big part of what we were doing. And we had to sort of learn to go, you know, you need to talk about other stuff because we're just, we're just killing everybody else in the room because they don't want to hear about this anymore. I think that kind of wraps us up for question period. Although if our listeners have questions about question period, They can certainly send them our way and we can address them in a future episode about the procedure of Parliament because there's lots more to cover.
Thanks for listening to Peter, How Does the Government Work? You can reach us by email at howdoesthegovernment at gmail.com or on Twitter at howdoesgovtwork with questions or corrections. Or send us an audio message at speakpipe.com slash howdoesgovtwork as we get unconfused together. Music